I'm not, obviously I'm not through with it yet, but just listening to these two guys talk about how important it is, the, the power and the value of just getting quiet in the presence of the Lord. Um, you just, just listening to them, you start to feel peaceful. But, um, I, you know, I'd had an experience yesterday. I, um, I was able to get up. I got up at my regular time. Peggy got extra bonus naps yesterday morning. Um, so I had uh, just some time to just, just really just sit, and all I did was just sit. And I practiced the, the, the breathing, the meditation sort of thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago about how to turn off your amygdala and just get and practice being, practice mindfulness and just being present. And it was, when I finally had to sort of come out of that and re-engage with the rest of the day, I had this incredible sense of just peace and well-being that just lasted for an hour. I was able to just be up and function and do my normal stuff, but it was completely with no sense of stress at all. Just a sense of God's presence just being in everything. So sitting there and just being quiet and breathing and listening to Jesus and blocking out everything else, it takes a lot of practice. This guy on this video that I was watching, um, he's up in his late 70s now. He's been in a little village in England where he lives. He gets up and goes to (coughs) the little village chapel and does two hours of just being in God's presence and stillness in the morning. Again, comes back and sundown, does the same thing again. That's, that's just his life, is just being in God's presence. It's easy to do when you're in a little village in England. Um, but you can do it anywhere. And, and this, you know, in Psalm 46, verse 1, where it says, oh, not verse 1, Psalm 46, verse down at the end, where God says, be still and let me be God, that, that means quit fussing with stuff, quit fiddling with stuff. Quit trying to fix stuff. Just crawl up into my lap and let me hold you and let me let go of your fear or let my love wash away your fear. You know what? It's, it's one thing to say, fear not for I'm with you. You can't just, you can't get rid of fear by saying, okay, I'm not going to be afraid anymore. You have to trade that fear in for something else. Most of us hold on to fear as a way to give some sort of control. So you let go of the fear and grab hold of God's love or let God's love grab hold of you. And you have to be still to do that. This guy told a story name was John Butler. He told a story about being a young man. He was going to be a missionary. He was going to, going to be an agricultural missionary. He was going to change South America, Ecuador or Peru or someplace like that. An Indian guy took them out in the middle of the jungle 
and there weren't very many paths, and they saw some areas of the jungle that were just kind of where, where the dirt and the leaves were, you know, like big gashes were moved out in the jungle, and they said, uh, and they asked the Indian, what happened here? Well, he said, oh, anaconda. You know what anaconda is, right? Anaconda. And so it's, is it still around here? Probably. And so they built a fire and got in their little tent for the night in the middle of this jungle, jungle where the anaconda had just come through. And I was just terrified. I was just terrified. That what's going to keep the anaconda from coming into the camp or all asleep and just killing us off and dragging, dragging us away? And he finds I had, I had to make a choice to surrender my fear to God. I got just really quiet and listened to all the jungle sounds. The jungle's a very noisy place at night. Uh, when you're practicing mindfulness in the jungle, it's like, what am I hearing? That's a jaguar. That's a howler monkey. That's a, probably a snake. I mean, there's lots of stuff you hear. Uh, he said, I, I had to surrender to God. I had to surrender my fear to God and, let, and just trust him to, to get us through the night. So you have to trade your fear in on something else. You can't just say, oh, well, I understand it all. Now, now that I understand everything, I don't have to be afraid anymore. I, I have no more fear. No, you have to trade your fear in for something else. You give God your fear and grab his love and let his love wash away that fear. So, but, but you have to be still to do that. doesn't have anything to do with the sermon, but that's what I'm learning in my own life right now. Um, I'm so glad to be able to report to all of you today as I look out over this assembly. I want to congratulate, because I've, I've now finally figured out that Gene Hall... Chuck, Laura, Jonathan, Linda, Ruth, all me, all of all of y'all, we are all noble nobodies. And that's a good thing. I want you to begin to celebrate that because that's a this is a really good we're all King's kids, right? We're we're all uh joiners with Jesus, but we also get to be not only just noble, but nobodies at the same time. I'll explain to you why that's important um, by talking to you about this guy. Raise your hand if you know who this guy is. He looks what? He looks angry. Well, maybe they... What? Sad, angry, sad... Um, he does not look serene and peaceful and well, yeah, but I'll, I'll explain a little bit to you and, and maybe you'll, you'll understand a little bit. Um, I'll give you a hint. I'm, I know once, once I put his name up, then you'll all go, oh, well, yeah, of course. Um, so, so... So, so right now you've all heard of him, right? No. no. Um, so you don't recognize him? 
You, you don't know his name? He is a noble nobody. Let me tell you his story. Um, Nate, you know, it. you know who it is, right? You know, you're going to go, you, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go, <laughs> when, when I, okay. So, Nine eleven, September eleventh, two thousand one. A day that will live in infamy, and in all the disaster and confusion after nine eleven, the United States knew that it had been Al Qaeda that promoted all these attacks. And they wanted to do something. They just didn't want to sit there and wring their hands. Uh, They didn't have time to stage an army. They didn't have time to invade Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia or anything like that. They They needed to do something. And they came up with this plan. Up in the mountains of northern Afghanistan, there is a city that was controlled by the Taliban and it was used by Al-Qaeda as their number one training and staging area. All of their fighters, all of their uh, terrorist groups came to this region of Afghanistan uh, and they were being protected by the Taliban. And there was, there were just like two, two or three Afghani warlords who were more forward-thinking. They were, they were more liberal. They, they weren't in favor of the Taliban. And, and their cities, girls were allowed to go to school, and they had movie theaters, and they wanted to be more westernized. Uh, but they were fairly, had fairly small armies at their disposal, and they couldn't even get along with each other. And um, the military powers that be said, okay, we've got, we've got a chance to do something really big, but it has to be now, and it has to be 100% top secret, off the board. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, and they sent actually several teams of, of army rangers. They had to parachute in. And one of those teams was led by Captain Mark Nutch. His last name is Wilson in the movie, but Mike Wilson or something like that in the movie, but Captain Mark Nutch was the, was the commander of this 12-person army ranger team. Their job... With what? Now they were, they were the army version of seals. You know, or they would say better than seals, but yeah, they were, they were. So they, they had to, they had to parachute in and and meet a CIA agent who had been embedded there for, who knows how long, and they were, they were embedded with a warlord, uh, an Afghani warlord and his army. Their job was to assist the Afghani warlord in 
taking and conquering this city and driving out the Taliban and Al-Qaeda so they could break the back of Al-Qaeda and keep them from being able to stage any more immediate attacks on the United States. Here's, here's how last minute and ad hoc this whole thing was. They had to leave so fast. and So they were going to the mountains of Afghanistan. This was October. So they have basically less than a month before all of the mountain passes are snowed in. So they get there right away. They didn't have time to go through the standard army requisition process to pull winter gear. You know, heavy coats and parkas and... Uh, and they needed GPS equipment. Uh, and they, they didn't have time to go through all the requisition process to get the right equipment. So they went out and bought it retail. They went to REI and North Face and places like that and bought their own equipment uh, because that's how much... Um, and, and they bought every Garmin uh, piece that they could lay their hands on because this was 2001 when there weren't, where GPS wasn't built into everything. Uh, but they needed all the GPS stuff because they're going to be wandering around the mountains. And their job was basically to get close enough to, to high-value military targets so that they could paint the target for American bombers uh, 20,000 feet up in the air to come down and bomb the targets so that then the Afghani warlord could come in and fight their way through and clear the path until they got to the city. Um, so they, they get... When they get there, parachuting down in the middle of the night, and they finally hook up with the law, warlord that they're going to be embedded with, they find out that the warlords don't use four-wheel drive vehicles or Jeeps or Humvees or anything like that. They ride horses. And only one guy in the unit was an experienced horseman. Happened to be Captain Nudge. But nobody else had ever... I mean, one guy like at a birthday party or, you know, something had ridden a horse when he was a little kid. Nobody else had ever been on a horse. And they had to get on horses immediately with all their packs and their gear and their weapons and ride off into the mountains. <laughs> and then they were re- really, really, really sore. One guy, I, I, and and the, Captain Nutsch was raised on a ranch, and so he, he said, okay, here's, here's what you do. Uh, you kick them and they go forward. Uh, you pull on this and they stop. You turn this. You pull this way and they turn left. This is, turn this way and they turn right. Everybody got it? Okay, let's go. And that's all the training they had. Oh, and there's another interesting thing. Uh, he had been the captain of this unit for... He had been the commander of this unit for a couple of years. But he had never seen combat. They all trusted him and they all admired him and they'd walk through a wall for him. And a lot of them had seen combat. But he had never been in combat before. And so, just to make it more interesting. So, bottom line is... The mission was successful, super successful. It's a movie, if you want to watch it, called 12 Strong. Um, and it's a little bit exaggerated, but, the, but it's not exaggerated when it comes to all the challenges they faced. They uh, worked extremely 
instrumental at striking a blow that completely neutralized the presence of Al-Qaeda and actually for a while diminished the power of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, they did the whole mission in 21 days because um, they had to do it before the, before the snowfall hit. Everybody said it was impossible. Most people said they would die and never come back. 100% successful. And nobody ever knew it happened. Nobody ever knew, nobody knew it was happening when it was going on. And for several years afterwards, nobody knew it happened. These were heroes who made a difference for America at a time when we were just tottering. We needed to buy time. We needed to get intelligence. We needed to figure stuff out. We needed help. And these guys, their mission was 100% successful. And if it weren't for that movie that came out, you'd still never know it happened. Most of you would still never know about it. These were noble nobodies who were following orders, who, one of those sets of people who run into burning houses when everybody else is running out. Guys who made a difference at a time when our country desperately needed help, but uh, there wasn't a ticker tape parade they didn't get to meet the president. Um, they didn't get to go on talk shows. They just came home and went on to their next assignment. Noble nobodies who changed the course of history at a time when America desperately needed help. So, what does that have to do with this? with anything today, the book of Acts we're talking about. Remember, I just want to remind you, the Holy Spirit, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon me and you'll be my witnesses or, say it this way, the Holy Spirit will give you the ability to tell what you've experienced everywhere you go with miraculous results. That is our marching orders as believers. To trust the Holy Spirit, to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and everywhere we go, just tell our story. Not because you're smarter than everybody else, not because you've got 10 degrees, not because you have some unique and special ability that nobody else in the kingdom of God has, but just because you are who you are, you are a noble nobody, and that gives you, uh, you have marching orders that God will bless. Right, so last week we talked about... Um, in, the revival that started in Antioch, um, where, where a group of noble nobodies from Crete and Cyrene that we didn't even, we, we still don't know their names, they decided to go off script and they went to Antioch and started telling Gentiles about Jesus. I wonder if you could, is there an organization called Gentiles for Jesus? Um, maybe that's the church. I mean, that's the church. Gentiles for Jesus. Welcome to Gentiles for Jesus. Anyhow, uh, and all of these Gentiles started getting saved. And so Barnabas went off and, and witnessed that it was really legit because he was a good man. He was full of, of the Holy Spirit and of faith. A lot of people were getting saved. He said, this is a big deal. I've got to go find Saul, uh, brought him to Antioch. And they stayed there an entire year 
and met with the church. So it started out with noble nobodies who just showed up and without asking permission or anything, just started witnessing to, to Gentiles and telling about Jesus. And the power of the Holy Spirit took over and, and people got, started getting saved all over Antioch. Um, so it had, was such a, a, a big impact on Antioch the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, that um, they became recognized as Christians there. That's where Christians got their name. It was such a, a, a high-impact event that they, were, they received an identity. It was a, kind of a scoffing identity, but those little Jesuses, those little Christs, they must have been everywhere for this to happen. It must have been a huge revival in Antioch. But you notice here that we eventually have a couple of name guys we got somebody's, Barnabas is somebody, Saul's is somebody. We got, we got people with, with recognizable names to come in and take over and sort this out. Oh, which is okay, but the noble, noble nobodies got it started. And all they were doing, you know what they were doing, the noble nobodies? They were just telling their story. They were just following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Wayne, did you know you can follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? Right? Carl, you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. You can do that. Jonathan can follow. Peggy can follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. When you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, sometimes you have to get still and listen to make sure it's not you. But um, anybody filled with the Holy Spirit can do incredible, amazing things, even if you're not a big-name apostle like Barnabas or Saul. Okay, so that was all last week. Now, here is new stuff for today. Acts eleven twenty seven through 30. Now, at this time, at, at this time meaning what? At the same time that Barnabas and Saul are in Antioch and, and this revival is taking place in Antioch and all these things are going on, uh, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named... Agabus. How many of you have ever heard of Agabus? <laughs> um, or maybe it's Agabus, Agabus, or maybe it's Agabus, or maybe it's Agabus, uh, or Agabus. Uh, uh, but anyhow, this guy named Agabus, whatever it is, he stood up and and he began to, to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea, and this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Okay, we have to chat about this for a minute. First of all, Agabus, a noble nobody. We happen to find his name out, but he's not. Um, he's, this is the first time we have ever heard of him before ever. Um, he's not one of the, well, actually he comes up again in, in chapter 21. Um, but by that time, I guess he's a somebody. Um, he's a noble somebody by then. That he's... Um, but this is a guy we've never crossed paths with him before. 
kind of after the fact, you, you can look up in, in church tradition and there's some, some stories of people have sort of thrown together over the years about who he might have been and what he probably did and what the church fathers 200 years later said about him and stuff like that. But at this point, we don't know anything about him except he's a prophet. He's by this time been recognized by Christians in, in some region of the church to, to legitimately be a prophet. And these aren't... In Old Testament... In Old Testament, a prophet was usually somebody who was sent to speak for God. And it wasn't necessarily prophesying, telling the future in terms of, you know, 40 years, this is going to happen, and you're going to do this. And you, it's, it wasn't telling the future. It was speaking God's... He was speaking for God, being God's mouthpiece. And it was, it was a lot about, like, go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. And um, pointing out to David his sin with Bathsheba and stuff like it was God getting in your face through a prophet. Sometimes there were uh, foretelling. It's a combination of foretelling and forthtelling, speaking forth versus telling the future. But some, it was usually like this is God says this is what He sees, and if you don't straighten up, then in the future this is what's going to happen. So, and. There was a, in the New Testament, it's sort of the, kind of the same way. Uh, prophets can speak for God, and sometimes it involves predicting things in the future, mostly because God needs to warn you about something. So he is a prophet, and he indicated by the Holy Spirit that there was going to be a big famine coming all over the world. This word indicate is a funny word. Sometimes it's it's translated signify. But it doesn't mean he said, hey, you know what? I was praying today and God told me there was going to be a famine. I just wanted to let you all know. It actually means to almost like act it out or use, in some context, it means to use sign language. Uh, it, it, it wasn't just conveying a message uh, with words, there was some other way that the Holy Spirit came upon him and he... Well, so here's, a, here's... Maybe we get a hint. We get to Acts 21 uh, where he comes up again. Um, he's, he prophesies that Paul is going to be uh, bound and in Jerusalem and carried off to Rome. But you remember what else happened? He took somebody's belt and he tied his arms up with it and, and he kind of fell on the floor and said God is showing me that this is going to happen the, the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit gave him a picture and an understanding which he acted out uh, predicting that Paul was going to be arrested and so I think the same thing happened here I don't know what it would look like but he said he indicated by the Holy Spirit that there was going to be a great famine in the world took place in the reign of Claudius Claudius was an emperor uh, he, was the, he, he was the emperor of Rome from 41 to 52 A.D. There were four famines during his reign. Uh, the one that was worse in Jerusalem was between 45 and 47 A.D. Um, so, just so you know, yes, big famine. There was, uh, it was 
created an emergency for the people in Judea and Jerusalem. And here's the interesting thing. So he, so Claudius, so, so, so Agabus made this indication that there's going to be a famine. The believers in Antioch immediately said, we got to do something. I mean, now there hadn't been, uh, if, they, if they took up a collection and they sent it to Jerusalem uh, through Barnabas and Saul, we know that Barnabas and Saul were in Antioch for a year. They left after a year. If this is the reason that they left was to take this offering back to Jerusalem, then that means that all the, the collecting and all the prophesying would have happened before that, which means they've got... Um, this, this is a very, very new set of Christians. That's the thing I want to convey. This isn't a mature church that's accustomed to donating to World Vision every month, month after month after month. This isn't a church that, that knows anything about anything. They're just now discovering a little bit about Jesus. But the Holy Spirit stirred up this batch of, of baby Christians and said... If, if there is a famine coming, it's going to be terrible on our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. We've got to start taking up money now and get it to them in advance to get it to them before the famine gets to its worst point. So again, here's a whole group of noble baby nobodies. People that really don't know, just barely know Jesus at all, and they they're you know they they're getting closer to Jesus, and Paul and Barnabas are teaching them cool stuff, but these are not the church at Antioch at this point was not a mature, godly. We've got it all together, and we hear from God all the time. Church, but boom, the Holy Spirit moves on them, and they take up an offering, and it was instrumental in helping the the church at Jerusalem survive. Noble nobodies who just responded to the Holy Spirit touching their hearts. Um, I didn't want to go that way. I want this. Okay. So, we have to stop here and take a look at something. In the church, the thing that takes, the, the thing that happens that turns a nobody into a somebody is the presence of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be a great speaker. You don't have to be a great teacher. You don't have to be a strategist. You don't have to be... uh, You have to have a great education. Um, uh, You don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to be popular. You don't have to be in good shape. Uh, You just have to be yielded to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Ephesians, we get this sort of picture here. Uh... God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's a big mouthful. And here there are, we're talking now about gifts of the Holy Spirit or abilities, let's describe it this way, abilities that the Holy Spirit can give can give you where the Holy Spirit works 
in you, with you, through you to do stuff that you would probably never figure out how to do on your own or care about doing on your own. That's the main thing. Uh, The Holy Spirit working through you takes you, changes you, refocuses you like a tool in a toolbox that he he needs somebody to do some work for him. The Holy Spirit comes on Linda and boof, off she goes. Um, So... So right here, they're apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, what sometimes the church call the fivefold ministry. But if we look, them, look at them for what they essentially are, which is just gifts of the Spirit, then you can go over to 1 Corinthians uh, and even to the book of Romans, and you can expand this out. And there are lots of uh, identified gifts of the Spirit. Some, some lists are more than 20. <clears throat> but uh, the most important thing to understand is that a gift of the Spirit is simply... Anything that the Holy Spirit decides to do with you and through you that, that would n- not necessarily be your character or you, you haven't had any training to do it or any previous experience with it, but it just starts happening. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, where'd that come from? I, I just heard something. Did I just hear that from God? Where'd that come from? That wasn't me. I wasn't thinking about that. Uh, we could learn all about the gifts sometime later, but there's, here's five gifts that are labeled here. One of them is, uh, references prophets, apostles or people who, who uh, were sent, um, who had, were recognized spiritual authority everywhere they went. They weren't tied to a local church. They could just go anywhere and speak with authority and people listen to what they said. Paul was an apostle. Barnabas was an apostle. Peter was an apostle. They could come, uh, they, they, might be, they might hang out in, in Rome, but if they showed up in Antioch, everybody would say, whoa, you know who's here? We've got to go. This person has a message from God. We need to hear it. So then you've got prophets. We've seen what prophets do. Prophets uh, could uh, function locally, but um, they, they also can go from place to place. Uh, evangelists are people who just have an anointing to speak uh, the, the word uh, and people hear it and they just accept Jesus um, an evangelist is an office but it's also a, just a functional gift I mean you, whenever you're telling people about Jesus um, you're functioning as an evangelist uh, there's some people who, who, who have a focus on that that's what they get excited about doing the Holy Spirit stirs it up and, um, but anytime you are telling your story You're functioning as an evangelist. Uh, pastors and teachers. Pastors are local, and teachers are usually local. And some people think pastors and teachers is actually both applies to the same person, but I don't want to get into a fight about that right now. Uh, that's, um, but th- those are people who are called and gifted to function in ministry locally. But... These five gifts and all of the other five gifts, all the other 20 gifts, however many they are, have a particular purpose. Gifts of the Spirit are not uh, to give us a thrill. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, the church in Corinth is having a fight about spiritual gifts because everybody wants the, school, everybody wants the cool gifts and nobody wants the, the crummy gifts. Everybody wants to be a prophet. Everybody wants to have the gift of healing. Nobody wants to have the gift of helps. Um, they, um, they're all kind of competing for prestige. And the people who seem to have the, the cool gifts were kind of saying, 
uh, bless your heart. Uh, if I need somebody with the gifts of helps, I'll give you a call. Um, so, um, but it's not about ego. It's not about us. It's not about sensationalism. It's not about miracles. It's not a, the, the gifts are functional, critical operations that the Holy Spirit does so that we can achieve the equipping of the saints for the work of service. The saints is who? All believers. Equipping the saints for the work of service. That's one thing. Build up the body of Christ. That's another thing. So, and, and this keeps happening over and over and over again until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature person to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's what the gifts are for. They come, they are the Spirit of God visiting us, manifesting God's wisdom and power and ability in us. As y'all were praying for each other, y'all were functioning in in some of the gifts of the Spirit. As you were uh, listening to the Holy Spirit and praying for each other. Uh, That was the Holy Spirit in action through you, just regular old you, noble nobodies praying for each other. But let, so let's dig into this just one more. Almost done. Let's just let's love this. Okay, so equipping the saints. Uh, katartismos. I don't know why I put these Greek words up here. It just uh, makes it look more official somehow. Uh, you're not going to remember any of this, but, uh, but, uh, but the Greek word is katartismos, and it means to make fit or complete. Sometimes it means to restore to wholeness. Uh, when it talks, the word is used among other places for uh, res- repairing somebody's fishing nets that have been broken and torn. But the, and the process of cartotismos, they were put back together and made whole again. So, so first of all, we are quicking. We, the gifts of the Spirit are for the equipping of the saints, which means making the saints ready or complete, even if it means restoring them to wholeness after they've been broken uh, or wounded, but putting them back in shape, putting them back in the, in the right shape, the best shape to be able to function uh, the way God wants them to function. Equipping the saints doesn't mean giving the saints a bunch of equipment. That's the interesting thing. I don't know why it's translated this way because it's not just... It, you would think that equipping the saints means uh, I'm giving you this piece of equipment and this piece of equipment and this piece of equipment on... Here's a few tracks, and uh, here's a GPS, and here's some things, and here's a map, and now are you ready? Uh, no, it, it means preparing us, getting us in the right shape spirits, uh, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, uh, so that we are complete and, uh, and ready in our, uh, our daily activities of following Jesus makes us fit or complete. That's, so that's for one of the things that the gifts do. To do, equipping the saints for the work of service. The word service here is dakonia, before we get the word deacon. <clears throat> for the work of being a, suver- a servant of others and meeting the needs of the body. Equipping the, the saints to take care of each other, to serve each other, to minister to each other, to be there for each other. Jesus said, what did he say? Anyone who wants to be 
referred to as great in the kingdom of God shall be what? Shall be the servant of all. The servant of all. The servant of all. So we're going to equip the saints so that they can be there to take care of each other and meet each other's needs. People just think that in the church, the pastor is supposed to do all that. Luckily, we have a great church where we know how to take care of each other. Oh, it's, I'm so blessed by that. Um, but equipping the saints for the work of service, which means so we can be there for each other and take care of each other, meet each other's needs, whatever they are, then to the building up of the body of Christ. Okidomio, that's what this is. <laughs> Sorry, so that's the Greek word. Uh, and it literally means to build a house. Building up the body of Christ. To build a house. Uh, so to, to make us at home with each other. To make us at home with Jesus. To bring us together. Uh, to safely live with each other. Um, and and to, to grow together as a family. Building up the body of Christ. Again, it's, this is so... It's not building up the body of Christ so that we can run faster or, or shoot straighter or be smarter or be more anointed or anything like that. that, that all, the Holy Spirit does that. But this is bringing us together as a family to be, to, to be connected to each other and belong to each other and live together. Um, but I think it's just completely cool. So equipping the saints for the work of service and building up the body of Christ until we all achieve the unity of the faith. Enotes, it's just a Greek word for one. So that we are of one mind in how we follow Jesus together. So we are one in the faith. That, that we... Um, you know, for, for several hundred years now, there's been this phrase that um, in, uh, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, um, liberty, and all things, charity. But in the, in the essentials, we're together. We are one. And the message of the gospel and the identity of Jesus we are one. And it is a challenge because believers have this nasty tendency to focus on the major and the minors and say, you and I don't agree on this one thing, so that means I can't fellowship with you anymore. Um, this is still the biggest challenge in the church today. And it's obviously can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit because otherwise there are too many hard-headed uh, opinionated people like me that keep things separated to the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, epinosis means exact, full understanding and discernment and recognition. So the gifts are continuing to operate. The power of the Holy Spirit is still active and moving today and will continue to be acting and until... We all fully understand and discern and recognize and have a deep, 
intimate knowledge of Jesus. How many of you would say that you're there yet? Oh, so that means we still need the Holy Spirit, right? We still need the revelation knowledge of the Holy Spirit. We still need the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and all the gifts of the Spirit because we're learning new stuff about Jesus every day. And, And finally, until we reach the status of of maturity. Retelios means perfect, complete, and all the work is done. It's come to an end. And and we know the fullness of Jesus Christ so that we fully experience what it is to know and be known by Jesus all day, every day. So the thing, whatever it is that's filling up Jesus is now completely filling up us. It just comes down to this, that um, that status of a mature man just means that when people look at us, they don't see us anymore. They see Jesus. They don't look at us anymore. They see Jesus. Apparently it was working a little bit in Antioch because the Antiochians were saying, Look at those little Christ. They just think they're Jesus. Kind of. So, this is what takes this this is what the body of Christ is all about. I thank God every day for Billy Graham, some, you know, for Charles Spurgeon, Uh, you know, you name your great heroes, your great missionaries, your great teachers. I thank God every day for those people. But if it weren't for noble nobodies who, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, just quietly went about serving Jesus every day. If, If you couldn't get saved in the 20, last half of the 20th century without hearing, unless you heard the gospel from Billy Graham, how many people would not have been saved from 1950 to last year? I mean, a lot. Billy Graham has just started out as a nobody who became a somebody, and he inspired a lot of nobodies, still nobodies, to go out and tell people about Jesus. Um, Body of Christ is noble nobodies who under the anointing of the Holy Spirit as God unpacks his toolbox and releases his gifts and his power takes people and turns them into sort of redeemed somebodies. You know, it's, um, it's just such... Let's see... My, uh, I thought I had one more slide here. When I, but my, hit the button and see what happens, Mike. Is that the last slide you see? Because my thing is not, I don't have arrows anymore. Not important. Was this the last one you see showing? Our noble mission. Yeah, I'll punch that button and see what happens. 
Yeah, okay. It's not important. Let me just tell you this. Here's what we've, here's our challenge today. To become, to get comfortable being nobodies for Jesus. We should have t-shirts made. Nobodies for Jesus. <laughs> so, okay, so let the Holy Spirit empower us, use us to draw people to Jesus, then support them, encourage them, let them grow to be more and more like Jesus. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's it. That's all there is to this. The Holy Spirit comes on us. We use our gifts to minister to them. We lead them through this process of, of equipping and building up and uh, getting to know Jesus better until they're filled up with Jesus. Then they go out and they do it for other people because this is not about us. It's about Him. The whole, the whole experience of being in the body of Christ is that it's not about becoming somebody because who's the head of the body? Jesus. Jesus is the only somebody. The rest of us are called to be nobodies that are deeply loved by Him, fully accepted by Him. That makes us into a somebody in our relationship with Him. But otherwise, we're just people that He uses, He loves, He heals, He delivers so that we can pass it on to somebody else. It's not about us, it's about Him. He's going to do that every day, all day, as long as you're willing to just... Let him receive the glory and, and be a conduit for other people. Um, I'm glad. And that, the big, I think the biggest trap that a lot of pastors fall into is wanting to have a big church so they can have a big name, so they can have a lot of big respect, so that they can become a somebody, so that they can get a bigger church, so that they can become a bishop, so that they can do lots of stuff. And... I'm just so happy to pastor a bunch of nobodies and be a nobody in a nobody town and let Jesus get the glory for whatever happens. All right? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for the gifts that were on display and released here today as we prayed for each other. Thank you for your spirit moving among us, touching our hearts, healing us, drawing us to be more like Jesus. All we want, Lord, is to surrender to you, exchange our fear for your love so that you can keep on doing it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.